Ladies and gentlemen, I would just want to say, I think this might be the first legitimately, like, no asterisks, no additional problems, good episode of season one. Data lore was about half of a great episode and half of a bad one. Um, we had the big goodbye, which had the problems with the story structure and the B-plot. But this episode is just good. If you disagree with that, that is, of course, totally awesome and cool. In fact, I guarantee you there's at least one of my viewers who's going to disagree with me on this one. He's someone who's been commenting with me. I actually don't remember his name. I remember his icon. <laughs> He's been commenting on these as we go, and I've been loving reading your comments, dude, by the way. Your little oh, giant paragraph and then a rating at the end. But um, I do like this episode. So, and there's like 17 reasons why, but before we even get into any of that, I just want to say this is our first Riker episode. This is the first episode in which Riker is Riker. This is our first Worf episode. This is the first time we really see Worf as a character, and he's not just snarking about humans or being Klingon. He's actually a character here. And this is our first Wesley episode. And that's funny, given how commonplace Wesley has been in the, in the series thus far. But he's actually a freaking character in this episode. This is also the first episode directed by Mike Vihar, the only TNG episode directed by that man. Some of you may actually know that name. I have mentioned him several times over on Voyager and over on Babylon 5, where he has directed both. He's also done directing work for DS9 and Enterprise. He is a great director. He's, he's probably, I'd say, up there with David Livingston as far as my favorite director. Oh, and Jonathan Frake. So those three are probably my favorite Star Trek directors overall. Oh, I suppose I should also add... Um, uh, Nicholas Meyer to that list, but Nick Meyer's only done a couple of things. Uh, the other three I just mentioned have done a lot of Star Trek, and they've done a lot of really good stuff with Star Trek. And if you pay attention while you're rewatching this episode, for those of you rewatching this stuff with me, you'll probably notice what I mean. There's a lot of really smart angles, a lot of good direction and placement of characters, a lot of good blocking. There's a lot of just neat little camera tricks he pulls here and there. Uh, good editing slices, a bunch of good stuff. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bore you with everything. It's just there's a lot of good stuff, and I like it. <clears throat> this is also a landmark episode because, unless I missed it, and I have been looking, this is the first episode with the Riker maneuver. For those of you who happen to, for the three of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it's when Riker kind of steps over a chair from the back and then sits on it. For those of you not aware, Jonathan Frakes is pretty tall. He's just a little bit taller than me. I think about two inches taller than me. And uh, something like that. He, he And he's had an issue with his back. We don't actually know full details. But it got to the point where just sitting down normally was difficult. So he got into the habit of just stepping over the, the back of the chair and sitting like that. And it kind of became a normal thing throughout the course of the show. So, uh, And, of course, the Picard maneuver is the... Uh, I don't know if you can really see my shirt here. Pulling the shirt down. Anyways, <clears throat> I also want to give credit to John Putch, who plays Mordok in this episode. He's not the best guest star we've had, but he's actually probably one of the better guest stars we've had so far in TNG. He's the, he's the guy who plays the Benzite, Mordok. He actually plays another Benzite in a future episode in season two, and I think that's basically it. I think he does like one other role. But he does do a good job of the role and actually sells it fairly well. So credit where credit is due. He plays someone who is culturally different without going into total alienness. And I kind of like that. I also want to give... Well, I don't want to give. Let's talk about Maurice Early. 
Now, I'm not going to go into my full diatribe about Maurice Hurley here. All I'm going to say right now is that I think Maurice Hurley was a net negative on the show. I want to stress that net part. There's no denying that Maurice Hurley is a complicated figure, much more so than Rick Berman. You know, Rick Berman is, is actually quite simple. Early on, he was a good influence. Later on, he was a bad influence. It's pretty one-to-one with Rick Berman. But Maurice Hurley is the weird kind of guy who was very antagonistic, very uh, caustic in his uh, personality and the way he interacted with people. He was, wasn't above playing politics. In fact, he was probably one of the most politically savvy people in charge of making TNG in, in the early years, in season one and two. And he had no problem doing that. In fact, this was probably one of his first major political maneuvers on TNG. He actually paid and got a, and arranged for a vacation for the Roddenberrys, for Majel and for Jean. Why? So they would get out of his hair. He was left as effectively the showrunner here, and when the two of them come back, he did this as a way to showcase how well the show had been doing in their absence to kind of convince Gene to push him as the showrunner. Now, we could argue the quality and the relativity of that. I mean, after all, Maurice Hurley is almost singularly responsible for a lot of the success of the Borg. No, really. But at the same time, Maurice Hurley, by all accounts, was a pretty horrible human being, especially to certain actresses on the show. Now, it is worth noting that these things have not been 100% corroborated, and I do not wish to spread rumor without at least saying this is the realm of rumor. So this is why I say Maurice Hurley is a bit of a divisive topic. There is, however, no denying the fact that Maurice Hurley was really big on one thing, and that's continuity. You see why that puts me in a bit of a weird situation? Because I don't like Maurice Hurley. Uh, I have seen quite a few off-screen interviews and interactions with him, and he is a very abrasive person, and honestly, I tend to believe most of the rumors about him. But, at the same time, he was someone who was really pushing hard for TNG to be exactly what I wanted it to be. And we will discuss that more when we get to Season 2. But we see the beginnings of that all the way here in Coming of Age. This episode goes out of its way to directly acknowledge previous episodes in Season 1 and to, and to kind of call to attention the choices made in those episodes as a way to shine a light on the mistakes of the crew and to kind of to, as, as a way of character developing Picard in particular. Now, that is pretty much the definition of setting continuity right there. That's probably the top tier of setting continuity. Previous episodes actually happened, and they have an impact on the setting and on the characters, right? Now, it's worth noting that there's actually character continuity and setting continuity a separate thing, so I should be more clear about that. But the point remains. Now, let's go ahead and talk about uh, one other small thing about this episode, and that's the fact that... It is a very distinct A-plot, B-plot episode. The two plots barely connect in any way, shape, or form, with one notable exception. But this also kind of feels like the first episode of TNG in a really weird way. Let me explain what I mean by that. So we've got the A-plot, B-plot thing, which would become the norm, right? There's a bit of a thematic connection between the plots, okay? We have characters actually acting like themselves and acknowledging previous events, and doing things that will be acknowledged in the future. The events of this episode will continue to carry forward continuity-wise into several episodes after this. And we have a presentation of Starfleet as actually being freaking competent. Now that may sound like a very cynical thing to say, like I'm just joking around, ha ha, Starfleet's actually competent. 
But if you've been paying attention along with me as we've been going through these ruminations, Starfleet's been a joke in season one. Like, it stopped being funny somewhere along the line how incompetent Starfleet has been in so many of these episodes. Virtually all of them. You know, I keep pointing out, why are we just now checking up on Angel 1? Why don't we have the medical equipment to properly analyze this vaccine? Why is it that we're allowing this idiot with his engineering theories, we don't even know how they work, to continuously work on all these different ships, you know, and, and so forth and so on. There are, basically every episode has an example of Starfleet being incompetent or the Federation being incompetent. And yet here, we see the exact opposite of that. In fact, we deliberately see the Federation and the Starfleet and their interesting connection between each other. This is probably the first time we've really seen the, po the, the point that the Federation and Starfleet are actually two separate entities. Because while Admiral Quinn and Commander uh, Remick are here specifically on behalf of you know, a Starfleet venture, they're doing so for an overall political perspective on the Federation as a whole. And we see a little bit of Federation politics squeezing into both plots. And we see Starfleet being distinctly shown as having actual freaking standards and military-grade testing in order to allow for entrance into training. Not entrance into Starfleet, just to become a cadet. Now, to be blunt, that's kind of the Starfleet I see in my head. You know, the Starfleet, that's actually not just this thing to aspire to, this thing that's going to be great, but something that is actually elite, something that is actually competent, something that actually knows what it's freaking doing. God's sakes, we have all these kids here, right? We have a Vulcan, a Benzite, two humans. At least I assume she's a human. I actually wrote down their names, I think. What do we got? We got Tishonic, uh, Aliana, Mordok, and Wesley, right? Actually, I actually wrote their goddamn names. And every single one of them is mentioned to be brilliant in their own field or really good in their class or have already had experience of some kind. Wesley himself is mentioned as having a leg up on the others because he has had starship management experience. Just a little bit, but it's there. There's even the kid up on the, the ship, Jake, who knows enough to be able to do a couple things with the ship. Not enough, obviously, because there's that scene where he loses control of the star shuttlecraft, but he's still got some knowledge and experience with it. So that's the level it is required to take a test to be considered for training for Starfleet. And that's how it should be, goddammit. Right? Elite military exploration. I mean, I, I, okay, I know a lot of you don't agree with me on the military thing, and that's fine. So elite organization which is military or not, which deals with military affairs, exploration affairs, diplomatic affairs, political affairs, you know, is basically this massive two-quadrant spanning organization. You'd think that this would be the norm. And again, that's why it's kind of my headcanon, that this is the norm, that this is how this works. Because it's kind of hinted at, but never stated outright, that this kind of examination is happening all over the place. This just happens to be the one, like, in this system or in this sector or whatever. Because, I mean, this isn't the place where they do that. These are not the only kids aspiring to join Starfleet ever this year, right? No, of course not. It's just the ones in this area. And so the idea is that they've got these Starfleet training outposts. You know, we see a nice picture of it in the show. Outposts in key sectors throughout the entirety of Federation space to do these things on a regular basis to send the kids who actually qualify all the way back to Earth to Starfleet Academy. So, so I like that. I'm with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, 
I also, uh, so now that I've talked about that, I also want to mention the uh, the teaser in this episode. I, I mentioned this is kind of the beginning of TNG. The teaser in this is far more what would become the typical norm for Star Trek in general from this point on, with a much shorter teaser. Obviously, DS9, as I've been pointing out over on uh, Tuesdays, has been violating that a little bit. But here in this episode, we have a very short, like a two-minute and ten-second teaser. It's just, here's the Wesley plot, here's the... Here's the Quinn plot. Bam! Cut to teaser. You know, that's the cold open. And I like that, actually. It's a quick, easy establishment of both premises. And it doesn't even treat you like you're a complete moron. It does lay things a little bit too on the nose. But I kind of I wish they didn't have the captain's log, basically. Wesley walking up to Jake, being like... This is so weird, because I'm talking about a Jake Sisko every week on my Tuesdays. Wesley walking up to Jake and being like, hey, I'm sorry you didn't get in. Maybe they'll be next year, blah, blah, blah. And then hugging his mother and shaking Picard's hand and getting on the transporter beam. In my opinion, there's no need for the captain's log. We could put two and two together on that one. We get what's going on here. And then the Admiral coming down and saying, no, I will speak with you and I'll speak with you alone in professional business. Da, 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 da. Right? I mean, that's all we needed. So you know, my only nitpick on that one. So uh, let's talk about the Remick side of the plot. So as I already mentioned, this is when Riker starts to kind of man up a little bit and be a little more uh, Riker. There's this great bit where Remick is like, I need to talk to you. And Riker's like, yeah, I'm busy. Now, there's no denying whatsoever that Riker is partially doing that because he doesn't like Remick. But at the same time, it's made pretty clear that Riker does have a freaking job on this ship. The XO's job is actually very intensive on most ships. So I, I would imagine Riker's actually very busy. Remember, he pretty much handles personnel on the Enterprise. We will see this in future episodes as well. So the idea that Riker is like, dude, okay, you gotta wait until he actually has time later makes perfect sense to me. I like that. Um, he, as I said, he also does the Riker maneuver for the first time. And they start bringing up the, the continuity thing, which is a nice little tidbit. <sighs> I'm trying to think how I should phrase hmm. I don't want to spoil future episodes on the off chance that you're watching TNG for the first time. I know for a fact at least some of my viewers are watching TNG for the first time here. So all I'm going to ask, as neutrally as possible, is how many of you think the episode, the events of Conspiracy, had already taken place in this episode? And that's how I'm going to phrase that. I personally like to think that they hadn't yet and that these two are specifically targeted for the events of this episode and what they were doing. Especially because of how natural Remick comes across. Great, great props, by the way, to the guest star. I mentioned uh, John Putch earlier as Mordock, but the guy who plays Remick, who, forgive me, I can't actually remember his name right now, didn't write it down, does a very good job, too, of someone who is here to do a job, but is still a person under that. He's a great example of what Star Trek usually fails at, Usually someone like Remick is the bad guy, and they are portrayed as a villain. You know, we'll actually see this in Measure a Man with, uh, uh, oh God, what's his name? Uh, Bruce Maddox, I want to say. Bruce Maddox. You know, it, that's usually how Starfleet portrays characters like him. They're just antagonistic. The end. I mean, God's sakes, Admiral Nechev, anybody? But instead, Remick comes across as someone who is doing a job, but still actually kind of likes the people around him and wants to get along with them to some extent or another, wants to interact with them more properly. And there's there's a great sequence of scenes where he's interviewing uh, Riker and then Worf and then Data. Actually, I think it's Data, Riker, Worf, Crusher. 
where you kind of get bits of that. But my favorite one is where Jake takes the shuttle out. That's a great scene, by the way, for many reasons. Because Remick just gets getting on it. First thing, he's like, okay, I got it. Oh, God, something's happening. But then Picard basically says, look, get the hell out of my way. I got a job to do. Remick complies. Notice he's taking notes almost the entire time, by the way. Nice little touch. And then when Picard manages to save the kid, Remick has this really natural, yes! I liked that. It gave across the impression that this was a human being, ironically, who gave a damn, right? Who was a person underneath the job, underneath the suit. And it's, such, it's so rare to see Star Trek really pull that off. I also want to say that his line at the end was actually kind of tragic in its own right. It, you know, once I am through with my tenure in internal investigations, I would love to serve on this ship. He even has this great bit where he's giving his report to Admiral Quinn, where he says... The I could find nothing wrong with the possible exception, and I wrote it down, of casual familiarity with the, amongst the bridge crew. And even that is just something that is a, a symptom of them being a team and a family. And you could tell the admiration in his tone when he says that. Now, TNG will eventually earn that. In my opinion, it has not yet. This is, well, like 15 episodes in or something like that. I've, I've lost count, but you know, it's, this is not that far into season one. But I kind of like that idea, because of, that will be what becomes of this episode. Eventually, this will be a family, and there will be great familiarity and camaraderie amongst the upper, upper staff and the bridge crew, which is both a positive and a negative thing, and TNG will examine the positive and negative aspects of that in the future. So, to me, another Starfleet personnel wanting to be a part of that makes sense, it also kind of makes me think, and this might be me reading too much into it, maybe not all places, not all Starfleet locations, ships, assignments, have that kind of camaraderie amongst the crew. I don't know if that's true or not. It's just something to keep in mind. Uh, I've, I've gone completely off my notes here. Give me a second. I'm checking here. Um... One thing I like is when Admiral Quinn offers Picard the desk job to kick him upstairs. By the way, think about how incredibly different history would be if Picard had taken that job. Holy crap. Anyways, when he offers him that desk job, watch Patrick Stewart's face. The man is, as ever, a great actor, and he nails it this whole episode. If you pay attention, and I want you to do this if you happen to watch me before watching it, or... Remember this if you watch the episode before watching me. Try to remember how many times Patrick Stewart changes how he acts around Admiral Quinn because he very effortlessly and casually goes back and forth between treating him like an old friend and treating him like his boss. And he shifts back between that casual and that professional thing so seamlessly and smoothly that most of the time you don't even notice it. There's a great bit in the scene I'm talking about where he flat out calls him Greg. He just kind of let it, he's Greg, and he's just casually talking to him. And then when it gets back to business, his back straightens just a little bit, and he says, are there anything else, Admiral? And then once that's done, he shakes his hand. It's, it's, it's wonderful, genius little stuff. It's no wonder Patrick Stewart would become so iconic as, as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. So let's talk about the Wesley side of things. Now, let me just go ahead and say something very unpopular. I really like Wesley in this episode. Come at me. 
I'm not afraid. As I've said before, I am not a huge detractor of Wesley like so much of the internet seems to be, or so much of the other Star Trek fandom is being, or as Will Wheaton himself is. You know, I'm not a huge detractor of, of Wesley. Episodes like this are a huge reason why. He pretty much nails the role of aspiring kid who is really good at what he does, but is really nervous. He's really hesitant. He's not sure of himself, but at the same time, he's trying to help others. In other words, to put it bluntly, they, they basically pull him a little bit down to earth in this episode, make him a little bit more human, make him a little bit more relatable. And it works, because now we see this kid who really wants to join Starfleet, and the way he helps Mordok uh, the whole time was a nice little touch, although I have to admit, when I first saw this episode when I was a kid, I was pissed off at this. He helps Mordok. Mordok succeeds and gets him to the academy. Now, Mordok flat out says, this is unfair. I only did this well because Wesley helped me. Then, oh God, I can't think of his name. The, 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 the instructor, the, the guy who's been running them through the tests, says, don't worry, there's other reasons why Wesley wasn't pulled in. Those are never explained or discussed. They never explain why he failed. They never explain why he was pulled down. They never explain why... You know, Wesley's aid of Mordok was not put into this. and could, Because, honestly, Mordok doesn't qualify as much as Wesley. I have my own answer for that. When Commander, I forget his name, says, Congratulations, you're the first Benzite into Starfleet, I think that's our reason. You cannot tell me that the Federation doesn't play politics. Because we know the Federation plays politics. Uh, it's actually something they're really, really good at. It's probably you know their their biggest strength overall is their is their tendency to 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 play at politics when it comes to the other powers of the quadrants. So, I think this was a maneuver to get a Benzite into Starfleet, and you see where I'm going with that. That's my personal headcanon as to why uh, they allowed him in despite what is effectively cheating. Oh, by the way, uh, just a really quick thing. I uh, I really like and dislike Wesley's uh, psych test. So first of all, I like it because it carries a theme that a lot of the rest of TNG would actually carry forward. In fact, DS9 covers this too. Uh, the idea that one of the worst command decisions you have to make is being willing to either order someone to die or to leave someone to die. This will be a very recurring theme, like I said, in TNG and in DS9, for pretty much the rest of the show's runs. But at the same time, it should have been really, really obvious that this was a test. I mean, Jesus, dude. All right, sit in this room with nothing in it. Oh, no, there's an explosion. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Now, I will say that if I was evaluating that test, I would probably ding Wesley some marks. Not because he made the decision and not because he, he, he did wrong, but because he hesitated. That hesitation, while human, is not something that a professionally trained military personnel in a crisis situation can really afford. Just a few marks off. I wouldn't say he failed that. Let me check my notes here. So, I mentioned the Starfleet portrayal thing. <laughs> I mentioned Wesley being more human in this episode. One of the other little tidbits of this is when uh, Oleana who was actually kind of wooden, her actress wasn't that great, but whatever, uh, 
basically hits on Wesley and says, it's a good thing you're so cute or else you'd be insufferable. So she wanders off and, you know, Wesley's talking to Mordock and she said, she was, I was cute. Is that a good thing? Yeah, I think. <laughs> that was wonderfully human. It's like, I, I, I think that's a good thing. I'm not actually even 100% sure. Maybe? God, I don't know. <laughs> I remember being like that a long time ago. Thousands, ten thousands years ago. Uh, there's a great, great, great scene between Wes and Worf. And it's wonderfully character and analytic of both characters. Uh, but mostly Worf. You know, he comes in there and we learn that Worf's fear is his reliance on others, his inability to do so. And Wesley says, but you do that every day. And Worf says, yeah. And I have to face that enemy every day. That says so much. That might actually be the first real characterization we've ever had for him, as I mentioned earlier. And the way he approaches Wesley is actually great. Because Wes is there on the holodeck and he's prepping himself for the psych exam. He doesn't know what to do. You know, what's, what's my favorite, biggest fear? I don't freaking know. I mean, when I was his age, I didn't know either. I know now. You know, I'm, I'm a little older now. Experience has taught me because I've actually faced my biggest fear in real life. And no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. But he doesn't know. He's a kid. What I like about it, though, is when Worf comes in, he says, oh, I'm sorry for intruding. And then Wes is like, no, wait, I thought I wanted to be alone, but I guess not. Worf is then warm to him. Like, uh, sociable, for lack of a better term. Worf is, I, I would actually call it paternal, almost. The idea of, in a very Klingon sort of a way, but still, you can tell Worf basically like lowers his shields a little bit in, uh, when Wes says that and starts to give him advice and help him with that and just kind of treat him like a person. It, it's a great scene. It's probably my favorite scene of the whole episode. Good stuff. Um, he also has a great quote. Thinking about what you can't control uh, only wastes energy and creates its own enemy. Now, that's a bit of a paraphrase of the old concept of, you know, give me the, the wisdom to accept what I cannot change. But it's still a nice little parable and honestly says a lot about Worf's mindset. Work on what you can change. Focus on that. Don't waste your time on everything else. So, I'm looking at the rest of my notes. I only have a couple other things to toss out here. I already mentioned the Benzite thing and the command decision thing. I do want to mention something with the Zalbin. That was a nice little touch where Wes, you know, gets run into the Zalbin and he's like, hey, you know, webbed hand guy, if you don't remember who I'm talking about. You know what I like about that scene? First of all, that kind of acknowledgement is the sort of thing that Wesley should be good at. Not because he's some kind of ubermensch and not because he's some kind of wunderkin. Yes, Goldberg, I'm looking at you. But because of the fact that Wesley is a book nerd. Now, I don't mean that actually as a negative thing. But it's true. Wesley's greatest strength to date, remember, not counting future stuff, to date has been his book knowledge about all the time he has spent researching and learning all the facts. So he has all the information and then can try to piece things together. Now, when Wesley is poorly written, he will do things like, oh, I don't know, glance at something and immediately figure it out, as I've pointed out earlier, and so has Will Wheaton. But for the most part, his presentation when he's not being a dick is that book knowledge. So being able to see that and be like, aha, and figure out the cultural difference thing is a very logical thing. I also like the way he confronts him, because when he's aggressive about it, he doesn't say anything antagonistic. 
Now, this is a very important key thing. I'm going to talk about this for just a moment because this is something important to me in real life, and then I'm going to be done with the episode. But too many times in real life, people just don't understand the difference between being aggressive and being antagonistic. Being aggressive means putting a lot of force, strength, oomph, passion, whatever behind your, your, your statement, but you're not saying anything deliberately designed to provoke the other person. That's not what you're after. You are presenting a side of strength, not taunting, right? By contrast, most people, like trolls, for example, internet trolls or real-life trolls, tend to say things that are very provocative, that are designed to taunt or irritate or to upset, and do it in a non-aggressive manner. In fact, one of the most common ways to do that is to portray with tone and body language something that's completely reasonable while saying something that is completely unreasonable. But if you pay attention to what Crusher says, what Wesley says to the Zalbin, everything he says is very straightforward and honest. No, you started this. Is this something where you want to get violent? This is unacceptable. All of that is truth. None of, this is, none of that is the kind of thing to say there's something wrong with you. You know, because it would be easy, for example, Wesley to say, what the hell's wrong with you? You know, that's even a fairly natural reaction. It's an insult at that point. But he doesn't insult him. It would be natural for Wesley to say, God, why are you blind, you dumb oaf? Right? Or if we want to go into, again, the troll mentality, Wesley could have said in a polite tone, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I shouldn't assume someone like you actually has the ability to see where you're going. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just straight up says, this is your fault. Do you want this to get violent? The other guy says, yeah, okay, we're cool. I like that. I don't have much else to say about this episode. I really did enjoy it. It was a nice tour de force for many of the characters. It's nice to see some of the actors actually getting a handle on who they are. It's almost like they actually have a good director pulling a good performance out of them. Although... How much of this rests on Maurice Hurley's uh, shoulders is debatable and questionable because, again, kind of a complicated topic and figure. We will see how this continues when we get to next week's episode, which I have no idea what it is, but I will see you guys when we get there.